Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of The Hollywood Podcast, covering the latest in film, TV, streaming, and social media. I'm your host, Max Geshwind. Stay tuned for today's episode. I'm so excited to be joined by cinematographer Nick Matthews, whose past work include the Shutter film A Spoonful of Sugar, the John Travolta starring action film Mobland from earlier this year, and now he's out with his latest film and perhaps his biggest one yet in his career so far, which is the 10th installment in the modern horror classic film franchise Saw, um, which is now playing in theaters. Nick, thank you for joining me today. I'm so happy to be here. I It's just been a wild ride uh, from start to finish. And in a way, the movie's life is just starting. Absolutely. By, you know, just coming out today. Um, I want to start with how you got involved on this project. You hadn't been involved or worked on any of the previous Saw films. So my natural first question is, were you already a fan of the franchise coming on to this newest installment? And when you came on, did you feel a need to study the first nine films to prepare you for this one? It's a great question. Yeah, I... So I grew up in the very fundamentalist Christian, conservative Christian, Southern house. And so media was censored. I didn't go to my first movie theater till I was in college. Wow. But in uh, the original Saw came out when I was in high school. And that was the heyday of blockbuster rentals. And I remember just pressing my dad again and again to try and watch that movie. And I was trying to figure out how I could watch it. But this was before streaming. I wasn't savvy with pirating. Uh, the internet, of course, was censored in my house as well. And eventually, like with enough needling and prodding, I was able to get him to say yes. And so I and I watched it and I was floored. I was really blown away by it. I saw it with my younger brother and we just raced upstairs after we watched it and we couldn't stop talking about it. And then I ended up following along for Saw 2 and Saw 3. And I think kind of after Saw 3, I sort of lost track of the franchise, I would say. Um, and so when I did hear about the, you know, Saw X, I basically I got a call from my feature rep um, and he said, hey, I've got a script that I think you'll really be interested in. And it was originally titled Party Invite as like a working title. So if it got leaked, it wouldn't be immediately clear what it was. And so I got that script and I interviewed with Kevin Gert, the director, about five hours after that. So I'd seen his lookbook, I'd read the script, and I think we were able to talk a lot about what we both loved about the early Saw films. Um, and at that point, I was really just going off of my memories as a high schooler and, you know, what I sort of felt when I watched it. And what I ended up doing was before um, I booked the job about, I think they Kevin and I had a great conversation. We talked probably an hour and a half and connected about literature and storytelling and i told him some of the same things about you know connecting with it in high school and uh he talked to a few directors i'd already worked with and then um a couple days later i was asked to join the project which i was daunted by but also really excited by because when i read the script i told kevin in the interview i was like i think this has i was like i haven't seen the rest of the movies since saw three but this feels on par with you know, the first two movies or the first three movies. And I, I think it has a chance to be the best of the franchise because Tobin Bell is featured so much. 
it it's a bigger scope it's more emotional and it was really the script felt like it was drawing from what the early saw films drew from um there was a griminess to it there's a you know it, photographically we we were just like we're really interested in creating these sort of like pockets of light with you know darkness all around and sort of shrouding the images so we had talked even just in that first conversation we had connected about a lot of that but also a lot of other filmmakers and storytellers and then um i ended up i think i had like two weeks in la before i went to mexico and so my wife and i went and we booked a cabin we tripped on mushrooms and watched i think I think we watched four Saw movies because Kevin was like, focus on one, two, three, and six. Um, and those will become our, you know, kind of our our sort of hero films for this movie. And I, I actually didn't visit um, any of the other movies. I'd okay. seen stills from them. Um, at this point, I've seen the other films. But I, when we were making the movie, I really didn't want to be influenced by any of the other films except for one, two, and uh, three, and six. Right. So... And then I, you know, I studied a, a number of other movies in, in the process as well that Kevin had referenced. Yeah, you touched on a lot that I want to get into with the stylistic throwbacks and working with Kevin and shooting in Mexico. But that's yeah. such a fascinating background that you brought up that you were so closed off to films in your upbringing. And it just seemed like such coincidental timing that as you began experiencing this, you know, freedom of watching, you know, whatever films you wanted is when the franchise first you know, came out and, you know, the first films generated the popularity that and the iconic status that we see today, you were able to, you know, take that in firsthand, just as you began, you know, having the having the freedom of, you know, watching movies. Um, That's so cool. Pretty wild. Uh, yeah. yeah. Pretty lucky. Like, I remember coming out and being like, this feels like such a bad boy movie. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, I want to talk about working with Kevin because he's been with the franchise from the beginning, whether it was editing the first five films or directing six and 3D. Um, can you talk about what it was like not only working along someone who's just a known, you know, legend in the realm of horror, but someone who, you know, you couldn't have worked along someone that knew the franchise inside and out better than he did. So how helpful was that as, you know, a soft franchise newbie coming on to this? I felt so trusted and supported by Kevin. Kevin has an encyclopedic knowledge of the, the franchise. You know, Kevin has, I mean, it's, there's so many different sides of Kevin and all of them are just a treasure of a human being. He's funny, he's brilliant, he's uh, relentless and tenacious. I mean, you know, when I'm on a movie, I'm my soul is given to the project, especially when I'm traveling for the project. And, you know, Kevin and I had an understanding that we could talk at any time. Um, and I just, I would get texts at one, two in the morning of him working through the next day, you know, and we had already worked through it, but Kevin's just so meticulous. I think I've gotten to learn a lot about filmmaking in general from Kevin um, and getting to understand his philosophy of filmmaking. He's an amazing editor and his brain connects the way that images can, you know, 
the way that images can cut together in a sequence and develop something emotional, which is to me the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful things about filmmaking is that it is actually a medium that takes you for, on a transportive journey. And, and Kevin's the sort of person because he's cut so many movies and he's been involved with cutting so many movies that he just understands what makes something work and what you need to make that work. So I, I think he has a broad knowledge of history, of politics, of, you know, uh, filmmaking itself. And we would find ourselves talking about Yodor everything from Yodorowsky to, you know, just laughing at the gr gruesomeness of some of this and the macabre. Um, and I would say that he has a very, uh, you know, he's, he's very smart as well. He's somebody who also is extremely kind. Um, and he was able to kind of hold all the pieces together in a way that I just don't even know how he was capable of it other than he runs, he's a runner and he runs every day for 15 to 30 minutes in at a minimum and he has just a zeal for storytelling and a passion for filmmaking um in terms of being like uh working with him as in the specific world i didn't know look in a way like i didn't know who i didn't know how amazing kevin was before i started working with him because there i don't know a lot of director names and actor names and editor names like i just there's certain things i know and don't know and like there are times i i mean the first time i worked I worked with Ice Cube on a video and I, at the time, because of my religious background and stuff, I just didn't know he was such a big deal to Los Angeles and to, you know, into rap music in general. And I remember having the moment of realization as we're shooting him on the streets in downtown LA and people lined the streets. And that's kind of how Kevin is, or it's like, you don't know what a gem he is if you didn't know his name. But then when I, once I became aware of him and realized how many movies he's, he's actually been brought on to not save, but to take from, you know, he's worked on everything from Barbarian to The Blackening to a bunch of other movies even now. Um, and his, in terms of Saw, I got to hear a lot about the first film, which was really exciting and fun, and how some of their creative solves for their lack of footage or the problems that they had or how fast the shoot was and how challenged it was. Um, they came up with really creative problem solves for that. And as a result it sort of started some of what is part of the saw look um, some of the burnouts, some of the rollouts, some of those like crazy visual style things, you know, those were born out of necessity. Those were born out of uh, the speed that was born out of the brilliance of James Wan as well. Um, and so Kevin, because he's cut so many of the movies, he also knows like, almost in a, in like a scary frame way, like, like every frame of like some of these movies and can reference and remember. And once I back to like from one through from one on, and I re remember asking him, you know, like even once you find out about his editing process, it's like he takes every piece of footage. He watches every single thing that you've shot. He subclips every single usable piece and then he hones it down and then he hones it down and he hones it down. And it's just so meticulous like that. And his approach to, you know, shot listing, his approach to like the trap uh, testing that we did in advance of this movie, you know, everything. It's just very meticulous and, and very fastidious with his work, um, which is something I really, really value and appreciate. And then I would also say 
Kevin has a real genuine appreciation for the fans and the fan base. Um, not everyone likes Saw, and you know it's not made for everyone. Um, but the pe people that really love it and connect with it and care about it, they, they find a lot in it. And I think Kevin spent a lot of time thinking about what that is and why that is. And Kevin has also followed along with the Reddit threads with when there used to be, I think it was called Saw Space or Jing something like that that exists in the early 2000s. Um, Kevin really followed along with a lot of that world. And so I think Kevin's really taken a front seat in interacting with fans about the films. And I think he has a real appreciation for what that is. So you really, frankly, I mean, when I read the script, I thought we had a chance to make the best movie and that wouldn't have been possible. Uh, and I wouldn't have had that kind of confidence if we hadn't been placed alongside somebody who's, you know, equal parts brilliant and kind. And, you know, I think one example of Kevin really holding the fans up in high regard and always having them be at the forefront of his, you know, mind when he's, you know, working on these films is the fact that with Saw X, you decided, you and Kevin and the team decided to pay homage to the earlier films. I think I read somewhere whether it was, you know, the aspect ratio of the earlier films or just the bold yellow color palette or it, it really captured this pervasive dark darkness and this gritty world that you know we came to love from you know saws one two and three those early ones and we see some of those stylistic choices being brought back here in saw x that we might have not seen in the more recent films can you talk about um your conversations with kevin and other department heads and really reaching back to those early films and bringing a lot of that aesthetic back into saw x Absolutely. Yeah, I think from the moment I was brought onto the project, the production designer, Anthony Stabley, had been in Mexico for a while with Kevin, I think a month or two. And they'd been scouting and trying to find the right locations to tell this story. Um, and so I think there was an ethos that was starting to develop as they were talking. And I got to sort of jump into that conversation. And my work, I mean, Kevin, you know, like I know that Kevin recognized that my work felt like there would they would be a really good fit for Saw. Um, I'm I've always been very interested in this sort of uh, etching, you know, kind of etching images out of the shadows and playing with grittiness, playing with uh, griminess, using pretty um, pushed colors and style, you know, stylizing the images a bit. And because my career started when film was sort of starting to, um, or I'll say rather than say it in the negative way, I'll say like before as digital was starting to come to, to the forefront, my career was starting. And so I've always been looking for ways to take digital cameras and fuck with them in order to make the images a little more textural, more gritty, more scuzzy, you know, to, to, to make them feel less like clean and bright and sort of like the thing that I, you know, get scares me the most, which is like something that feels very uh, plain and generic and sort of um, perfect. And I, we wanted sort of like, we wanted it, something that felt handmade. We wanted something that felt, um, you know, like we were throwing the audience right into this subjective emotional landscape of John Kramer, as well as 
throwing them into the traps and letting them experience the traps in a really uh, specific and emotionally connected way. And I mean, ultimately, you want to look at the traps and say, like, if I was here, what would I do? And so it's about putting you into the mind's eye of the characters, as well as, you know, hearing them and, uh, you know, it sound does so much work. Um, but, you know, in the design, they were already starting to talk about bringing back this sort of rusty, oxidized metal look to everything, this really industrial look. And I wanted to do use a range of, I mean, I tend to light with practical lights, which is, you know, lights that are uh, exist in the frame, not as film lights, but they exist as art pieces that are part of the set design. And so a lot of what I was doing was talking to Kevin, talking to Anthony about what these traps actually were. What did they actually look like? What were our set builds going to be? Because we had some of these locations that we'd rented, but we were going to be painting them. We were going to be building sets into them. We were going to be constructing all the pieces that went inside. And if you were to see what some of these spaces looked like before we got in there, they're just a shell. And then by the time Anthony and his team were done, they had developed this huge, beautiful world. But at the same time as all that's being talked about, we're seeing trap designs come, you know, come to fruition. We're seeing, so it's all these pieces are kind of, and plates are kind of spinning all at once. And in the, in the midst of that, Kevin and I are shot listing. Um, and, and we're also talking about visual style. So I'm pulling images together. I'm showing them to Kevin. Um, I'm taking location stills and I'm using Photoshop to play with colors and show Kevin some of the palette choices. And so a lot of what we ended up arriving at was well, it's set between one and two and we wanted to feel like a companion piece to them. Um, so that meant shooting a one eight five to one aspect ratio, which is boxier. It's not CinemaScope, which Jigsaw and Spiral both were. And I know they were trying to do different things there, but that's not what we were trying to do. Um, for us, also, it's like seeing someone's face in a box versus seeing like it as a strip in a widescreen. They say different things and they mean different things. I love both and I've used both. Um, but in this case, Saw has a lot of screens. There's a vertical element to some of these traps. There's, you know, we wanted to be able to see John Kramer and, and him to take up the image. And Saw is a very fast cutting movie. Uh, they tend to be very fast paced. They There's a lot of close-ups. Um, and so for us, I also started testing cameras and lenses in order to figure out how do we find something digitally that's going to give us this texture and tone tonality we want. You know, I would have loved to have pushed it further. I was hoping maybe we could go to like a film out and actually like print to 35 or, you know, I would want to, I tried to see if we could do shoot eight millimeter for the traps wow. and actually, you know, mix that into the digital stuff. But what we ended up doing was we used a Sony Venice, which is a modern camera. Um, we shot out a high ASA and we added more uh, film grain in post. And then we used filters. We used a pearlescent one. And then we combined it with this, um, set of cook lenses that are modern glass, but they have vintage, a vintage style. And they're called, I think, the Cook Eye Classic Pancros. They're fantastic. And um, we ended up shooting the film in a 4-3 aspect ratio, but with like a 185 frame or frame guides. So basically what you're doing is you're shooting the full vertical height and width of the sensor. And then in post, you're able to, if you want to, you could pan and scan a bit really just in the top and bottom because you're taking the full width of the image, which we only did a bit, but it, it helps sometimes because, 
you know, when you only get to do something once or twice, or you paid like hundreds of thousands of dollars for a prosthetic and you're going to cut it up, you know, if an operator dips down or messes something up, it's nice to be able to do a little adjustment post. Um, and I'd ask Kevin, you know, do you do tend to do that as an editor? And he's like, I reframe everything because yeah. I, I want the audience, you know, if you're cutting quick, it's, you might want things more center punched. So the audience's eyes know exactly where to go again and again and again. So um, that was kind of the starting point, I would say, in a lot of ways. It was, how do we make this feel like a tetanus shot, you know? And for me, that meant talking a lot to Anthony about what colors he was going to use and the spaces. And then I took a lot of inspiration from those color choices in the color choices that I made with my lights. And so for me, a lot of it is, I have to think about how would John Kramer, because, you know, John is ultimately fairly theatrical. He wears a robe. He has a creepy puppet that he rides or drives around with however he does it. Uh, you know, he has a, a mechanisms that he's handcrafted, um, which, you know, the, you know, the sort of, the suspension of belief of movies, you know, it took a full crew to figure out how to make these traps and make them work. And John is able to do this, but that's the beauty of Jigsaw. That's why we love him. Like he's brilliant, but also he's human. And I think this movie is exploring that a bit. And um, yeah, so what, so for us, it was sort of like looking at Saw 1 and Saw 2. And as I was looking at the palettes of those movies, they tend to be fairly monochromatic, I would say. You know, it's like, two is very much like that yellow um that kind of yellowy green that like jaundice yellow and then mm -hmm. one is very much those blues and there's some pieces of greens like the razor wire trap is and the the reverse bear or you know the reverse bear trap is like that's those are pretty green so i wanted to kind of take pieces of all of those but like most saw films a lot of this takes place in one location and so um, I also didn't want it to feel like you arrived at a location and the characters arrived and then you're dealing with seeing the same tonal space, the same color palette the whole time. And I felt like some of the earlier saws ended up in that sort of territory. And I think they look great and they're beautiful, but I didn't want that. So for us, it was about designing in three dimensions and trying to create, you know, color separation within the background, the foreground, the midground. And we started doing this thing where as traps turn on or off, lights turn on or off with the traps and they're associated with them. And I looked at it as if John designed this trap, he designed things on circuit timers so that as traps turn on and turn off, these circuits flip on and off. Um, and so that was a way I was able to change the lighting organically within the space in a context that made sense. And once again, we're pulling from Giallo, like Italian Giallo films, you know, which are pretty heightened and expressionistic. And Saw is very much, I, you know, I've described it as like seven by way of a new metal vi music video. It's very like, it's, it's just, it's in your face. It's bold. It's bombastic. There's big camera moves. We're taking all of that. And then we're putting a little twist on it, trying to, you know, put it through John Kramer's eyes and bring a certain elegance to this, but still really pay homage to those, you know, previous films. Absolutely. And I want to talk about how this is framed in a different way that we haven't seen before in the earlier films in that it is framed through, you know, the perspective and the eyes of John Kramer, who we're used to seeing as the antagonist, which is, isn't is quite the case in this 
newest installment. Um, but I do want to talk about something that we've touched on a couple of times, which is that this film is shot in Mexico, which is unlike any of the previous yeah. films. Um, and being in Mexico, I think, really allowed for this expansive visual language that Saw fans hadn't been used to seeing in the previous films. Um, can you talk about, um, I, I believe you previously worked in Mexico on another project or maybe other projects. Um, yeah. Can you talk about how that prior experience shooting in Mexico lent itself to your advantage, you know, going back to this setting in this film? Well, it, it meant a lot of things. Um, I, I don't speak Spanish, unfortunately, um, which was a definite barrier. Um, I think they're, you know, for the story that they were telling and for the story that we ended up telling, Mexico was just perfect. I think there's, it's a really beautiful city. It's not all yellow, even though we also use that convention in this movie, um, which was a big conversation. I, you know, I was worried about the tropes of that, but at the same time, we also wanted to differentiate photographically between locations and it's an easy visual tool to do that um but mexico city is gorgeous it's a it's an amazing place it's a beautiful place with a lot of people and because i had shot there before i did i did a movie that was called at the frontier i shot it in probably 2016 or 2017 I think it was the third movie i shot and then it came out like years and years later um and in the process of making that movie i had a lot of challenges the style of working in Mexico is different. Um, who's in, who's involved, you know, how departments are run is just different. Um, you also are dealing with the restrictions of the city. Um, and Mexico city is a very production savvy city. It has, you know, huge camera houses. There's three major ones, um, which apparently was started by all by the same guy. And he, started the first one then got divorced and she runs that place then started the second one with somebody else got divorced she runs that place and now he owns the third um which is kind of crazy but there's you know the advantages for me were that i knew crew there already and these crew had been working there since i had left and they continued to heighten the, you know to raise their profile to work with us crew um they were they had an understanding of in, you know, they knew English very well, which I was really grateful for and helped me out. And I learned a few Spanish words along the way. I thank them. Um, you know, I I really felt cared for and I really felt taken care of by the crew. And, and so I ended up working with a gaffer named Nacho Sanchez, who I'd worked with on the prior movie. And then I worked with a, a first day scene named Sitlali Vargas, who brought on most of my camera team. And then I hired, um, I actually have some friends who are, I've worked with in the US who had moved to Mexico. And so I was able to get good recommendations from them. So it really was, it came down mostly to, I knew that when I, when I heard that we were shooting in Mexico, I knew that meant that we would, if we were shooting this movie in the US, our money would not go as far. And for us, that meant our production value because of the people, because of the city, and because of the way in which we can make the movie, it would let us do more and go further and and stretch the budget in a way that, you know, would still make the movie a better movie. So when I saw that, I actually got very excited. Um, I was thrilled. I did get food poisoning in Mexico, which is pretty classic gringo territory. 
Uh, and I did also get COVID on the movies. Uh, so like it was a process and I, you know, I had my own like physical challenges in the process, but it was a, yeah, really fantastic experience. And just, I, I can't speak strongly enough about how great my crew were in Mexico. Yeah. Um, my last question I wanted to ask you is about what I touched on earlier about John Kramer being framed in the hero role, which is a first for the character and in, in the, all the films um can you talk about as the dp how um you know i know you hadn't worked on the earlier films but how the framing and how shooting the character of kramer might have been different than how he had been shot in the earlier films now that he was seen through this new perspective as the not you know not as the antagonist but as the protagonist yeah i mean i think i still think that I still think that, you know, it's up to audiences to s decide if he's a villain or a hero. I think I don't see him really as an anti-hero. I do, you know, in some ways, part of me looks at him and sees him as a torture artist. But then, you know, I know Tobin Bell hates that sort of like point of view. And I would say Tobin is genuinely kind, genuinely, extremely passionate. Um, he is, you know, I think he's in his early I think he's 80 at this point or a little past that. Maybe I don't remember his age, but he's, I hope I have as much energy and charisma when I'm his age as, as he does, because he is just one of the most talented artists I've ever worked with and I've ever photographed. And he cares deeply about the character of John Kramer. He has such an understanding of the mindset and, and the point of view of John Kramer. And in a way, like he can't divorce himself from that, you know, and I kind of love that. Like, I think it's, really amazing and so what we were able to do was this is the first time that john kramer is being seen in a really human way in a in a kind of pretty exhaustive way and we're and the movie is very linear compared to a lot of the other saw movies it's very much following one man's journey and that person is john kramer and so as a result almost the first third of the movie is almost like a character drama where you are just with john kramer and I think it less, you know, it it was more that we were just, we were shooting scenes where we were actually able to just be there with John Kramer and sit the camera on John Kramer. And he became the focal point of the scene. And in a way, if you're wondering what the point of view of a scene is, it's almost always John Kramer's point of view. Or if we're in a trap, it's very much like this God point of view or victim subjectivity point of view right so like either very much in the space of them or we're really jumping back and they're you know but he is kind of the eye by which we see the rest of the, mo the movie um and i i think the main thing for me is that because the way in which the, the emotional journey that john goes on is the emotional journey we get to go on in the movie which is one of discovery and elation as well as betrayal and I think as a result, the movie kind of moves from something that's a bit more Rembrandt beauty. Uh, you know, it, it feels a little more, it's, it's the most saccharine a Saw movie could get, but it, yeah. but it doesn't cross into sentimentality or even saccharine territory. It's just, it's, you know, it's, it's like we were trying to find what's the, there's more scenes outside than the, there's ever been before. There's more, it's it's still not glamorous lighting, I would say, but the movie moves from more beautiful, more uh, photogenic lighting 
uh, you know, and then it moves into more brutal, hard light, you know, deep shadows. Um, and frankly, like you, really, yes, of course, you see the age of the actors, you know, it was a big conversation. But at the end of the day, to try and glamorize the actors and fill in the shadows and create really cosmetic lighting felt wrong. It felt like it felt like we are still detecting the facial structure of these actors having shifted um, because they're both 20 years older and um, it didn't feel like saw. And so like we got to do some tests and play around with that. But yeah, I mean, I think ultimately the goal of a cinematographer is to serve the story that the director is trying to tell and then to create spaces where great performances can happen. Um, and luckily with Saw, it's such a visually playful genre, you know, it's such a visually playful film that I really did just like have a lot of fun. Um, and it's, there's not, there's nothing quite as cool as going to set and like, there's just like a dismembered leg or a dismembered arm or, you know, puddles of blood sitting around. And I'm kind of like, this is just one of the most exciting ways to, to make a living. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's sort of some of what informed kind of the decisions we made. Yeah. Well, I mean, your hard work definitely paid off. Congratulations again on the film. It's already being called, you know, the best soft film since the original some are even saying the best soft film period. And wow. um, I'm sure that's going to reflect this weekend at the box office. I know it will. The fans will come through. Um, but congratulations again, Nick. I appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy the movie. And uh, I hope it, you know, sends a shiver through your spine here and there. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please take a moment to subscribe to The Hollywood Podcast for free on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Until next time, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Max Geshwind. Thanks for listening.